0: I'm Chelsea Sedaro, and you know, I still see myself. It's pretty new to the sport. I'm super curious and I want to learn from the best.
1: And I am Eric Gilsonan. You know, everyone is a triathlete, they just don't know it yet.
0: Who is your hero in the sport of triathlon?
1: Finish line, whether you're the first finisher or the final finisher, is where all people come together.
0: We're all out there together. That's what I live for. This This is the Chelsea and Eric show. show. (laughs) Uh, Welcome to the Chelsea and Eric show, Eric. So great to be here with you.
1: We have a unbelievable interview today. I met him years ago, and uh, he's just a a regular guy. He is just a regular cool guy, but he happens to be the 2004 IndyCar Series champion as well as a legend. 2013, he led the final lap of the Indianapolis 500. He gained the checkered flag. Tony Kanan, he's an Ironman. He did that in 2011 in Kona. So we are going to have a little time with TK.
0: You know, Eric, I am so looking forward to this interview and I'm actually a little bit nervous because usually we've had, you know, professional triathletes on, oftentimes my colleagues and I know the lingo and I know all about what they do on a daily basis. But, you know, I don't know a whole lot about race car driving or indie car driving. So I'm excited to talk to Tony. I'm a little bit nervous, but mostly I'm just looking forward to hearing more about his story hearing more about, you know, this incredible life that he's lived and also, you know, finding out what drew him to triathlon.
1: Yeah, absolutely. He's a great guy. He's had me over to the track a few times in Sonoma. He's had my son Max and I over to the track. He's just a really great man and uh, good for the sport of triathlon, good for the sport of Indy. The most loved man in Indy, Tony Kanan.
0: on, welcome to the Chelsea and Eric show. I think I can speak for both Eric and myself. We are beyond thrilled to have you on. So thank you so much for being here.
2: No, my pleasure. I, uh, you know, I got, I've been listening since the first one you guys started. Eric sent me the link. Uh, I promote it on my Facebook. Hopefully I, uh, I'm going to contribute so people can, uh, you know, Listen to you guys more. I love it.
0: I love it. We're banking on, we're banking on uh, this interview to really drive up our listenership. Let's so. do it. Let's do it. Let's do this. Tony, you and your family lived in Miami for quite a long time, mm-hmm. and you recently moved to Indianapolis. Yep. Tell us a little bit about that move and your new home, how you're looking forward to this coming winter. Well, just I have to
2: say, you know, uh, being a Brazilian and living in Miami was... The dream, right? So uh, it's basically, you know, people say Miami is not even part of the United States sometimes. You, you, don't, you don't barely speak English there. So I've lived there for 23 years. Uh, my wife is actually American from Indianapolis. Lauren lived here her entire life. Um, I spend a lot of time in Indianapolis because the race shop is actually based in Indianapolis. So three years ago, during a hurricane in Miami, Lauren was home with the kids. We have four kids. Three of them live with us. My 13-year-old lives in Brazil. And the hurricane happened, and I was here in Indy for work. She got really scared, especially with the three little ones. Uh, for people that are not familiar with what you gotta do, obviously, you gotta evacuate and all this stuff. It was very complicated. So she's like, I had enough of this. I'm not used to this. You're always in India. I'm always in Miami. Why, why, Why don't we move there? I said, well, you know why, because of the weather. Uh, but at the end, I mean, it was better for the kids. It was better for her. We were closer to our family. Her entire family lives here, her siblings, her mom, her dad. So, you know, this is what you do when you make a family. You make sacrifices. And they make so many sacrifices for me that I felt that that made a lot of sense. So, growing the kids closer to their cousins uh schools here are great. I mean this place is great, but at this time of the year I hate my life. I can tell you that. It's uh I think COVID is uh is a very negative thing, but for this equation it's actually a very good thing because then I know I can't leave the house. I can't do anything, so it helps because my friends in Miami keep being sending me pictures of the sunshine and the beaches and everything else and I'm here sitting at thirty degrees, but it was a big transition. Um, we've been here for two years. The kids love it. I mean, the kids are little. I have a five, a four and a two-year-old that live with us. Uh, they actually dig the winter the snow. I mean, kids like, they looks like they don't even get cold sometimes. They play on the snow like you are freezing and they're like just fine. So it was a good transition, uh, a big transition for us, but it was cool.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much for that transparency. I think so many of our listeners can relate to that balance that you have to make with work and family and training
2: i mean and and i have to like i said i mean they make so much so much sacrifices for me right apart from my racing career you talk about my triathlon career and chelsea and eric you guys are very familiar with i mean chelsea you lived at that it so that you eric i mean i have 17 races a year which it takes 17 weekends plus the testing then i have this brilliant idea to become to try to be a triathlete but not just a sprint triathlete okay. i want to do an ironman so training 25 26 hours a week apart from the racing so it's like i'm never home really uh and i'm very fortunate that she i mean my wife is i mean eric matter plenty of times she's she's a rock star yeah. i mean she lets me do whatever i want you could totally say triathlon is not your job I mean, you have to be fit, but you don't have to do an Ironman to drive a race car. And she supports me 100%. So that was the least I could do for her. Now, I have to do a lot of Zwift. I have to do a lot of running and treadmills. I mean, up until I moved to India, I've never actually had done any indoor training because I didn't have to, right? Right. Uh, And I got used to it. And I have to say, Chelsea, I kind of like it a lot now. I mean, one thing that I said I was never going to do, I'm never going to ride my bike on a trainer. I'm never going to run on a treadmill if I don't have to. Obviously, we didn't have an option this year. You know, at some point, everybody had to do that. And, and I actually, nowadays, I prefer it. It's, I mean, my treadmill and my, my Zwift, it's right here. I hop in. I mean, my it's tennis so is, my Hoka shoes are right beside the, you know, you wake up, have a coffee, boom. I don't have yeah. to drive anywhere. I don't have to go anywhere to run. I mean, I kind of enjoy it.
1: Uh, that's <laughs> awesome. We saw you doing that Zwift during the Ironman Hawaii week uh, a few weeks ago. Yeah. So in uh, Indianapolis, in Indiana, uh, recently all over, COVID cases have been uh, increasing. Uh, how are you and your family and the Indy family community doing there? They've done a great job of being able to pivot and put on some events.
2: Look, Eric, I mean, we we were able to do a lot of things this year that I I didn't believe we were going to. I mean, we did... 14 IndyCar races yeah, great with no fans which and uh, made me uh, I had announced my retirement this year as you know Eric yep. uh, probably Chelsea doesn't know that but then uh, at the end of the year jokingly on a Zoom call with a couple of my sponsors I said I don't think it's fair that I should retire with no fans so I should do it again and I guess three weeks later I'm doing it again I'm coming back to do a proper farewell with fans because that's what you know I think it's fair for them to see me after 23 years in IndyCar to do it. But it was hard, Eric. I think it was hard for everybody. And I'm not here to... It's not a complaint. I think uh, I always try to look at the positive side of things. I mean, it's, it's been bad for everybody. Depressing, people are getting worried financially. Uh, some people benefit from it. I see you talk to some of the companies and they they made a lot of money uh, because of it, because a lot of people stay home. And for us, for me, I discovered a lot of things that I needed to do in my house that I had no clue because i have never home. Uh, it brought us closer together. I mean, you talk about a guy like me that spent last year 248 days on the road Yeah. Um, out of the 365. So I'm not really a, like I was present because we have technology, but I wasn't like first three weeks. I'm like, is this is, this, this is how it works here. you crazy. An appreciation for my wife, appreciation for teachers that you have to do remote learning. Come on, that is no way, man that is no way. I mean these teachers are rock stars, so we all got through it uh, I actually uh got tested positive uh, I have no idea how I got it i I was asymptomatic I never had any, I only found out afterwards because they made Wonderful. me. I did a test to see if I had it. Nobody else in my family got it. Uh, thankfully, I wasn't going anywhere. and We never left. I mean, I was obviously doing the championship. I couldn't get it. It was actually, I found out that it was after the my last race, so I wasn't even doing the championship, but um, I had no idea. And, and that's what I think it happens to a lot of people, right? So thankfully, nobody here in the family got it. Uh, I wasn't out and about. Uh, we diligently, we, we wear masks, we do whatever we need to do. I honestly don't think none of us fully understand what do we really need to do, but to try to follow the guidelines of what we hear from the FDA and everybody else. But uh, I mean... Um, I didn't feel anything. I trained like crazy the last three months, riding my bike 60 miles a day. So whatever I got, I probably can't it out of it just because it was like, uh-uh, it's not happening. So I wrote. I've been running every day, like nuts. so I, I don't know, but everybody's
0: good. You know, I think some of our listeners may not be super familiar with IndyCar mm-hmm. and what you do, but you are Brazilian, Yep. as are many of the greats in motor racing, <laughs> like Nelson Piquet, Emerson Fittipaldi and of course Ayrton Senna. Yep. Uh, what's with Brazilians and race car driving?
2: Just it's uh, back in the day, uh, the two most uh, popular sports in Brazil was soccer and racing. And now obviously over the years we've been we're becoming more popular in volleyball, a little bit of basketball, a little bit of tennis. But so. Any kid of my generation or prior to my generation, when we were born, if you want to do any sports, we we'll either play soccer or race cars. Basically, that's what happened to me. I wanted to play soccer. I was terrible at it. My dad figured that out right away, says, this is not for you. And then put me to race go karts. But that's why. I mean, we have a pretty, uh you know, and I think it's different in America because. We have so many sports, but like there, it's more focused, was more focused between those two. So we build more athletes, having more athletes, you have more chances to put more people up to the rankings and to the being a pro and stuff. So that's that's why we have so many.
0: Sure, yeah, you really have these two tracks for your, for your talent. So it's so interesting to see um, all the superstars that have come out of the country.
2: Yeah, I mean, and obviously we don't have a big enough you know, that we need to come out of the country because this is where, you know, IndyCar, Formula 1, that this is where, you know, where everything happens. So we ended up migrating uh to either Europe or here, and that's how, uh, how I ended up here.
1: Tony, your dad got you started in racing. Uh Tell us about that and your trips to the uh cart track slash old fishing hole. Um So basically... The way he started
2: was as a kid, dad and I, dad loved racing. He never raced in his life. He was a huge race fan. And Sunday mornings, we used to watch F1 and IndyCar at home. When I was eight years old, he took me to watch a go-kart race at a go-kart track. And then I actually said, dad, can I have a go-kart? And it didn't take him 10 minutes after I asked the question. We went straight from the track to uh, the go-kart factory to buy one. And that's how I started. It was a father and son thing. That we started doing when when I was eight years old, uh, we, it was it's a funny story because once I started it, he didn't tell my mother what we were doing because my mother was really scared to have her son racing cars. We used to go out. He bought a go kart left in a in a in a shop in Interlagos where I where we live in São Paulo, and he we used to disappear every Saturday all day, and he would tell my mother that he were doing a dad a father and something. My mother, a very Brazilian and extremely jealous person, told my dad was doing something really wrong and taking me as an alibi, like, you know, seeing somebody else. I don't know what she was thinking, which was great because what happened was she started to get suspicious and put my dad under pressure and start going crazy about thinking he was, I don't know, seeing somebody else. Or When she found out that I was racing, it was like, ah, well, I guess it's fine. So it, was, it helped my case. We're parenting
0: very, tactic there. It was
2: very well executed, awesome. planned by my dad. So, and I mean, from then on, it was history. Eric, I became, I, I won six championships. Uh, I lost my dad when I was thirteen. Uh, he was my biggest supporter, um, and I promised him. A, you know, he had cancer for a while, so we had a chance to chat a lot about life, career, and one thing he asked me was not to give up my racing career because he thought. I was really good at it and I made him he made me promise him before he passed that that's what I was going to do. So it was kind of an easy decision after he passed. Right. Um, We went through very tough times uh, financially after we lost him, uh, but it made us stronger. And uh, I guess I kept my promise.
1: Yeah, you did. And can you tell us that story about uh, what happened between the go kart race a week after he died and uh, becoming a professional race car driver in Europe?
2: Dad passed away on a Thursday night, uh, which I actually went to see him in the hospital that night. Uh, It was around eight o'clock. We sat down, and he was lucid, talking. And I, I, I would never expect going to trips to the hospital and having chats with my dad while he was at the hospital was actually normal. It wasn't like he was in a coma or anything like that. He was just chatting, but I guess he was—he probably knew. I don't know. Um, so he actually, in on that conversation that night, we sat down. He says, you know, I got a couple of things to ask you. If anything ever happens to me, which he talked about that a lot. And I'm like, Dad, what are you talking about? Don't worry about it. You're going to get out of this. Um, he says, take care of your mother and your sister and never give up racing. You got to promise me that. And you, one day you're going to become an Indy 500 champion. And we talked and we dreamed and we, dream we laughed. I said, of course. So I went home. It was a Thursday night. He actually passed, you know, uh, between Thursday and Friday morning. Mm. My mother came home Friday morning, which is weird because she was always with him in the hospital and told me the news. And I had a go-kart race that weekend. Mm. I was 13. I processed. I, I think as we get older, I think we process worse, right? when you're a kid, yeah, I mean, 13, it's old enough, but you process, but you don't. I said, mom, um, I, you were aware of the conversation I had with him because she actually said, you know, three words before he passed, he said, he asked me to take care of you guys. And, but he asked me to remind you what you guys talked. And I guess he turned around and fell asleep and really went. Um, I said, Yeah, I remember. So I have a race this weekend. If you don't mind, I'm going to go to the go-kart track. So she took care of the service. In Brazil, it's really quick. It doesn't happen like this. Like if you pass today, tomorrow you bear it. It, That is no a week and stuff Mm -hmm. like that, which in a way I don't disagree with the process. It's less painful to everybody. Mm Um, I went to the go-kart track. I uh, qualify on Saturday, qualify on the poll race on Sunday and won that race uh, dedicated to him, Uh, gave my mother the trophy, which is a very old trophy. Now we're talking about 30 plus years ago. She still has it in her nightstand in her house until this day.
1: Wow.
0: Wow, What a powerful story, Tony. That's amazing.
2: Yeah. It's, you know, I mean, a, a lot of times that I tell the story, people feel like, Feel sorry, or I, I think I, I love to tell the story to just make people understand that it's possible. You know, I, mean, I had every single um, roadblock in my life to to say I, you know, you know how many people came to me after and said, you're crazy, you should go to school and stop doing this because this is what race cars. I mean, really, are you a playboy or it's a very expensive sport? You're never gonna make it, and mm-hmm. and the only thing that kept me straight was the promise that i made him i said i i told him i'm gonna do this i can't i can't just let it go and so hopefully it will inspire people to follow their dreams and then to do what they want to do you know that's that's something that nowadays it's so i don't want to get i don't want to extend this too much because i want to talk about more other things but even with social media nowadays, everybody has an opinion on what you should do, what what you shouldn't do, and and it's even more now. Right before when we were young, Josh, I'm not calling you old. I'm probably a lot older than you, but like you had less access to that. But everybody has an opinion what you should and shouldn't do, and, and I think uh, if I can inspire people to just to do what they love and follow their heart, that's why I tell the story. It's not it's not a sad story.
0: Yep. No, I and I think you know as an athlete myself. You know, I've realized that you have to be really deliberate about whose advice you take. And as you progress in a sport and as you get better and, um, you know, attain more uh, notoriety, more people have opinions all of a sudden.
2: How many people told you you couldn't win anything or you shouldn't even be doing it right. You know what I mean? It's like, it's crazy how how I understand people are entitled for their opinion, but I'm entitled to disagree. That's all I say.
0: Sure. So how do you, I'm sure that there are a ton of people that, you know, want to weigh in on your career and your decisions. How do you, how do you choose who to listen to and whose advice to take?
2: I'm not, this is something I'm going to review here that uh, it's actually, it helped me, but it hurt me quite a bit in my career. I'm not a very good listener. I'm very stubborn. I, I rather fail for a decision that I made. Growing up, granted that, you know, my mother was really, young. my dad was 42 when he passed. My mother was 36 and we had to hustle. I have a young sister. I didn't have a lot of, uh, our family was really tight. And I, I my childhood, I have re- a really good example of a, a father and mother, a couple. They were really like, my mother never remarried. I mean, 36 years old, come on. You know, you have a life ahead of you. She never did. She said, no, your dad was the love of my life. I, I can't which is crazy. I can I can't imagine. And, you know that's probably so wrong on her side. But so thank God that base made me you know we've learned a lot of things when you're young, but after that I was out in the world. So I and I unfortunately when you're out there that young, I mean I had to quit school. I never actually finished. I never graduated. I stopped in 8th grade because I had to work. I had to pursue my dream. I had to bring some money to the house to help my mother. Um you trust no one. So I, honestly, I didn't listen to a lot of people because in the position that I was, not a lot of people had a lot of positive things to say. It was always the easiest way. You should go back to school. What are you doing? I actually tried to to be sensible with people's opinion. But if I had an opinion, even if, if it was wrong, I always went with my guts and, and because I actually rather blame myself for making that decision than somebody else and 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 the negative comment or the the can't do it's something that later on the people that are close to me figure out that that's actually what fires me. You can't run a four minute mile well, we'll see you can't do this you can't so the can't it's what drives me, and then I think that's that's what I probably deep inside wanted it to hear from people. No, you're not going to do that. You're never going to become this. You're never going to do that. So I didn't listen a lot. I made a lot of mistakes. I think uh, going back, I don't regret them, but I could have listened more. But no, to
1: answer your question,
2: I'm not a good listener. Ask my wife about that too.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, she is a saint. Hey, Tony, you're the only driver to lead the Indy 500 in each of your first seven starts. But then it took you 12 attempts to actually win it. How sweet was that victory? And when you set out for that twelfth attempt that day, did you think to yourself, "What the hell do I need to do to win this thing?" What was it like,
2: Eric? I mean, I asked myself that question. The twelfth tries, I did. You know, like it's it's like, I mean, it, you guys are the athletes. You tr- you try to win the biggest event, like Chelsea won. Like I, it, but you gotta try to win. You gotta try, but. You get to a point that you go, when is that going to happen, man? I mean, I lead this thing every time. but I don't don't lead the right lap, apparently, because I have to lead the last lap to win it. And honestly, that year was really, it was something really weird or special. I actually decided I was okay with the fact that I was probably going to be very well known for one of the greatest at that place, not to win that race. And I said, you know what? If that's it, that's what it is. That's what it is. How many people? Why am I gonna feel entitled of winning something if there is a lot of people that put as much effort as I did, or maybe more, maybe less? Who am I to say? Oh, life is so unfair. I mean, look what I got. Look how I be, What I became. Look how much I achieved. What I come from, and so on. I said, you know what? I want to enjoy this Indy 500 in a different way. So I came into that month. The the race is obviously on one day on Sunday, but leading up to the race is like three weeks. You have testing, you have media. It's like the Ironman in Kona, right? Or the Olympics or the ITU championships. It's a huge build-up, And obviously doing that for 12 years in a row, being as successful uh, every year, the questions, is this the year? Are you ready? I mean, every year is the year. But I decided to enjoy the race in another. I, it was my last year of my contract. I didn't know if I was going to race again. We were, we were running out of sponsorship. Um, I said, I want to enjoy the race in a different way. So I went, spent more time with the fans, sign autographs, look at other things instead of just be like, well, oh, I don't want to talk to any reporters. I don't want to do this. I'm here for the race, blah, blah, blah. And, and, and I relaxed and it came. I mean, it came. I mean, it's something that I can't explain it. I'm not saying, you know, could be a coincidence uh, that by relaxing like that, I put less pressure on myself and it, it came. But it, it, that's what happened. Really, that's what happened. And it was such a sweet victory. And then since then, look, at that happened in 2013. I was about to retire. We're in 2020, going to 2021, and I'm still racing. So that actually changed me and my life and brought me to the next chapter. Of my career.
0: Nice. I can so relate to that, as I think, you know, a lot of other athletes can. We think that we have to want something so badly in order to get it. And oftentimes when we finally let go and take the pressure off, it actually, you know, allows our bodies to do what we've trained so hard to do. Um and it allows that, you know, like <sighs> auto drive for lack of a better explanation <laughs> A phrase to you know really like come into play, and it frees you up to just do what you're made to do. And then I
2: think as as a pro athlete, uh, it, you know you guys know this, but it needs to be enjoyable. It, 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 I, I wasn't enjoying because I was putting too much pressure on myself. I was sitting in the courses. I need to win. Everybody's watching. Everybody's asking me the same question. I said that year. I said you know what, you guys can all go. Excuse my French to hell. I am going to enjoy this is I went back all the way back in the days that I used to go go car racing with my dad, and I just loved to drive. It was the love to drive. it was no pressure it wasn't like about the win it wasn't about winning the prize money or getting the interview or becoming famous. It wasn't that it was for the pure pleasure of driving and then I think I had lost that because i- put, I had put so much pressure on myself. Uh, me, the situation that I put myself in, or the reporters, anything, whatever, you name it. And again, I think I, I told my wife that I became that year since I became uh, the Tony Canon that was nine years old, that was to go to the go kart track and just enjoy the oh, look at this, look at this corner. And it happened. I, 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 and it has to be related. Nice.
0: I think that that, that pursuit and journey to your ND500. Victory suggests a certain relentlessness. Yeah. How do you think that how do you think that, that has maybe translated to triathlon?
2: Well, Chelsea, like I have to say what you guys do, it's you probably disagree. A lot of people disagree. I talk to a lot of the pros, I'm friends with a lot of the guys and Eric and, and I think what you guys do is amazing because I as a race car driver, I don't need to wake up every morning and be on top of my game. Uh, we don't drive the race car every day. But barely, We barely do that. It's such an expensive sport that we have schedules. Once the season starts, you have three days of testing, and that's it. So can you imagine if you say, all right, you're only going to train for three days, and then you're going to race 17 weekends, and, and that's it. And you still can be good at it. If we do that in triathlon, you'll be nowhere. I mean, you're not going to be, like, even close to. So the dedication is in a different way. It's mentally. You have to be fit but I I can work out one hour a day and still be extremely fit to drive a race car. So with that mentality, but the relentless was for me in my career was trying to make it without people's support, without people believing that I could do. So that I use that on my triathlon training is, I'm a horrible runner until honestly, uh, the Hoka partnership, I've never, I hated running. It was something that you could not, it hurt me so bad. I had shin splint problems. And the, the partnership with Hoka became because I actually bought the first shoe and changed my life. And I'm not here to say that because they're sponsoring me. They're, they're not my sponsor. They're my partners. They, they became friends. I have friends in the company, Eric included, that I've never endorsed something Thank God I'm in a position on my triathlon side that I don't need to endorse something because they pay me money. I endorse something because I like. I ride the bike that I want to ride. You know, I'm more fortunate than some of you pros that have to, whatever you guys give us, they pay us. We got to do it, which I've done it in my racing car career, but sure. it, it was it was that. It was like, you I don't think, a race car drivers are not athletes. A race car driver can't do an Ironman. So, well, hold on a second. No, we, we're going to do this. So... That helped me to to wake up in the morning and say, I'm gonna do this. I'm a terrible runner. I'm still a terrible runner. I'm just run more comfortably now because I have great shoes to do it. It doesn't hurt me anymore, so I can see the pleasure. And I'm fully aware. You know, the, the, biggest, the biggest challenge for me was to understand that because I don't know if you related to that, Chelsea, but you can, that Once you're good at something and you're a pro, you think you can be good at anything, which is I think is a bad oh yeah a bad habit of a pro. Like, you well, know,
0: it's like, that confidence, it you just know, translates to other correct. aspects of your life. <laughs> Misplaced confidence, perhaps sometimes. It's, it's, I'm, I'm
2: good at what I do. What, that, well, I can do that. Yeah. And then you're like, okay. So that, I mean, and, and that, what people don't realize as well, because the common question is why Ironmans? Why triathlons? I mean, can you just go to the gym for an hour, do some neck exercise? 30 minutes of cardio would do it. Um. It's to train my mind. I mean, in an Indy 500 race, it will last three and a half hours. It's extremely hot. The car runs. We have, I lose three to five pounds per race on sweat because we are side that thing with suit, helmet, two radiators that work at 130 degrees. You're like, you're in the middle of a sauna making, I mean, a race car that you can bring your heart rate. So I top my heart rate at 165. That's me. When you're sitting down and driving a car and just turning, and you bring your heart rate at 160, try to do that in a chair. You know, it's it's amazing how with the g loads and everything. So it's to train my mind. When I do a ten, a seven to ten hour training uh, day, or or a nairo man, or I go to do a three hour indie car race, it's a piece of cake. On my mind, it's a piece of cake. So that's what drove me to do it, and 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 it became a sport that I. I I love to hate and I hate to love, Um, you know, how, how disciplined you have to be. And then when I, as a pro, a a professional athlete, I don't want to do things halfway. So if I'm going to train, I'm going to train like you. I'm going to train like, you know, I don't know all the pros do it's 30 hours a week it's three times a day i'm gonna take naps i'm living the life of a triathlete but i'm a race car driver
0: how do you think how do you think you know you train i've read that you train 19 to 20 plus hours a week yep and for those listening this is outside of tony's career as a race car driver so this is swimming biking running gym yep Do you, and you do CrossFit as well. I know you're a CrossFit fanatic.
2: I actually stopped that. I was, I was getting too big. I was getting too big and I was running slow. So I had to stop.
0: Sometimes you can't have your cake and eat it too. I
2: know.
0: So (laughs) how do you think that maybe this approach has changed your game? You spoke to the mental aspect, but, um, Uh how how do you think this has maybe elevated your game in the car?
2: Well, just so here's the thing. Um, As we all know, uh, we are as pro athletes, and anything you do, you pass a certain age, you're old. You know, you're just old. They just call you old. They decided that you're old. They decided you can't do this anymore. They decided that, you know, your body doesn't take it. You're not the same. Or you have a new generation that it's coming. That is, it's always going to be like that, guys. I mean, when I was young and I came to IndyCar, I was beating big names like Michael Andretti. I mean, and I was like, yeah, that's awesome. Well, now I'm, I'm on that seat. But what happened with the triathlon and being fit and living a healthy life, it extended my career so much. I'm 45 years old. That doesn't happen very often. When we see, you know, Craig Alexander winning the Ironman at 38. I mean, we're extending that, right? Um so what triathlon did and, and and living a healthy life, it extended my other career, which is my my that what I make a living out of it. Because what happens is you keep it on top of your game. But obviously, is the speed still there? Yes. Am I as fast as I was when I was 20? Uh, definitely not. Are my reflexes still on point? 100% because with technology nowadays, people don't even know this. But on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I have a, actually a, uh, a guy that actually trains my eyes, trains my reflexes. We have like things that we do. If you guys follow me on my social I media, that. you amazing. get reflexes. Your, stuff. Like, yeah. your reflexes are on point because you're That's not so as cool. fast as you were. So I gave people less and less and less reasons to say, well, he's old. Oh, he's big. or oh, he gained weight. He's not in shape. They have nothing to say because that is nothing to say. You can say I'm old because I have a great beard and I'm 45. The speed's still there. The experience, you can't beat that, as you guys all know. So it was a balance that I found. So triathlon, really, I have to say, it made my professional career last a lot longer. They call me the Iron Man of IndyCar because that doesn't happen very often. When you're 35, 36, 37, if you don't perform... And you're not, you're just old and they're going to replace you for somebody else.
0: And I'm sure so much is the, that narrative that you tell yourself as well. You know yeah. how you're training in the gym. You're not telling yourself that you're old when you're doing 25 hour training weeks. No, I tell,
2: you know, for a fact, you know, I tell myself when I wake up in the morning, the entire thing in my body hurts. It takes me five extra minutes to get up. I need to take a hot shower uh, before I go work out because, because everything hurts. But. The recovery is not as good, but yes, you're right. It's all, it's what you tell yourself. And and, 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 I, and that's what I say. I mean, we go to the, when I go to the gym, you have, you know, the young generation coming, I said, bring it on. If you think, if you think you're good, come on, let's go work out. Let's go for a run. Let's go for a bike ride. And sometimes they can't do it. And sometimes actually that drives them to say, okay, now, now I'm ready and I get beat, but that's what I want. You beat me, I beat you and we keep improving. But at my age, yes, people can call me old. Do I feel old? No. And if you call me old, you got to own it. Let, let, let's go. Whatever you want. I'm ready. You know, is it CrossFit? Is it bike? Is it run? Is it swim? Is it driving a go-kart? Whatever you need.
1: Yeah, I love it. it was a great workout, that uh, touch pad, uh, training the nerves like that, because that gets you to that next level at 45, maintaining the nerves and the uh, reflexes. Let's talk a a little bit about uh, pre-race rituals. Do you have any IndyCar pre-race rituals or triathlon (laughs) pre-race rituals? And have you ever been given a good luck charm?
2: Yeah, I knew you were going to touch on that. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. My rituals are not... I mean, I've changed a lot. You know, you go... I was extremely superstitious at times, so I used to put my left shoe first. I used to have this... uh, Underwear that I knew I won a few races, so I would save it, nice. wash them, and put it away. Only wear on Sunday race day, and stop all that. Uh, I I take a nap thirty minutes before the race. I listen to like a a meditation or calm music. I just try to take a twenty minute power nap just to relax. And it's time to go. I mean, I don't, I don't. That's pretty much what I do. I could sit here and tell you that twenty thousand things I've done different in my career, and they never worked. And the, 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 the day that I won the Indy 500, I didn't do anything because I was so busy. I went from one interview to the other straight to the car and won the race. So that was out of the window, you know, as far as rituals. Uh, obviously, you do your preparation during the week, the hydration and all the stuff that we need to do as athletes, but that's not a ritual. That's just what you got to do. So I wouldn't sure. call that a ritual. But the good luck charm, it's a cool story. When I was nine years old, my mother, remember I said in the beginning that yeah. she was extremely scared that I raced cars and stuff. So she gave me this medallion. Uh, it was really cool. It was colored. It meant nothing. She just said, look, I i bought this. Uh, she, was ex- she is extremely Catholic. So I went to the priest and he put some holy water in, wear around your neck every time you were in the go-kart to protect you. So I had that since I was nine. As I grow up, you can figure that my neck got a lot bigger, so the the thing started to get really tight, and I I couldn't wear. I didn't want to replace the band because that was the original, so I start wearing it in my pocket. Fast forward twenty plus years, during the month of May here in Indy, we do a visit to the uh, the, the Riley Children's Hospital. We bring some race cars, we gifts, we sign autographs, we talk about racing. Um, one when one of those visits. I got called to go to actually to the first floor to see the kids that couldn't come down to see us because some of them were really sick and they couldn't get out of their rooms. And walking around in one of the rooms, there was this mother sitting on the bedside with her daughter, Andrea, which was 16 at the time. She was in a coma. She had a, a stroke, actually playing softball the day before, and she was going to surgery the next day. The mother was obviously extremely distraught. I can imagine being a parent nowadays, how she felt. And there was a bunch of pictures of uh, her in the wall and the hospital room and stuff. So I'm talking to her. I just had left the racetrack half an hour before that. And by habit, I talk a lot with my hands as a typical Brazilian. But I also put my hands in my pockets all the time. While I was talking to her, I reached my pocket and I actually grabbed my good luck charm. I grabbed it and I said, look, it popped up an idea in my head. I said, I don't know if you believe this or you don't have to take it, but my mother gave me this when I was nine um, to protect me. If I give it to you, would you give it to Andrea and put it in her gown so her surgery will go right? Because obviously it was a a brain surgery. You never know if she was going to live or not. Obviously, a desperate mother took it right away. She wore it, went through surgery. Extremely successful surgery. Uh, I got in contact with her. That was a, probably 2007. I don't remember the year exactly. Um, and two years later, we lost contact. I never heard from her again. She never heard from me. Fast forward to 2013. Friday before the Indianapolis 500 race. That was on Sunday. I get an envelope. Somebody handed it to me and says, Hey, Tony, somebody sent you this. It was a big envelope. I opened the envelope. It was a big letter. Say, hey Tony, it's Andrea Brown. I hope you remember me, of course I remember her. Told me her story, I got married, I'm about to have a kid. I hope I've been watching you uh, for all these years with your quest of winning the 500. And I mean, this is your year and this is what's happening. I'm sending you the medallion back and you're gonna wear it in your pocket because you're gonna win this one. It's your time. So I put it in my pocket And Sunday, I won the race. So at the podium, I pulled it out. If you guys Google my win, you will see my first interview out of the car. This is what I did. And that, from then on, the story just became a lot more famous about it because now the medallion was magic. You can imagine how many emails or and and requests that I get for people that want that because they believe. They wanted something to believe. So... After the win, uh I had to call her, and I said, "Andrea, what do we do? I need to give you this back." She says, "No, that was yours. You gave it to me. I gave it back to you so let's keep the tradition. You keep it until you figure out in a natural way in a very um in spontaneous way if you find somebody that you think you want to give it to, pass it along, tell the story, and it's going to be that person's responsibility to uh to do it so i held it until uh five four years four and a half years ago uh, i was traveling lauren was pregnant with our first son deco i was extremely worried that i was not going to be here that i was going to miss it because i was racing and i said here it, she didn't want it because she, she knew the story she was there said this is yours now this is to protect you if i'm not around uh, for the delivery of our baby and sure enough she had it i was traveling her water broke she was alone at home she called a lot of people nobody could help her she drove to the hospital oh. after her water broke and then i actually made it in time because that took a long time to to come out but now lauren has it and i told her to do whatever she wants with it she still has it she has it passed along
0: wow that story sure gives you chills tony Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, you know, my next question for you is why you think you're such a fan favorite. But I I think that you kind of answered that for us already. No,
2: but like, it's so hard. People like, it's so hard to answer questions about yourself because you don't want to come across like, well, you know, I'm so cool. Um, Chelsea, I think, you know, the only answer I could give you is I, I... I treat people the way I wanted to be treated. I always put myself in your place. Uh, I don't consider myself a famous athlete, a famous race car driver, a famous person or a rich person. I'm just Tony. I'm very fortunate to be, to, to do what I do. I think it's fair that I get paid and I get my, make my money because I work really hard for it. But I just treat people nicely, I guess. I mean, I, I do, you know, I'm approachable I don't know I think this is things that I've heard over the years i don't I don't feel that I'm above anybody I'm just tony a cool I have a cool job, you know, and I do cool things, and I feel extremely fortunate about it and 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 the way I take it sometimes you know it's like you said the bigger you become, the more problems you attract yourself because then people start having opinions about it. and what a lot of people deliberately or not when you're in the spotlight, a lot of them want you to fail intentionally. And a lot of them are just, they just envy what you got. And maybe even unconsciously, they make mean comments or they, they send a bad energy towards you, or they will make a mad comment just because. And I I try to kill that in the spot and just, just me. I mean, when you're meeting someone, right? Like I I remember because being a, a pro-athlete or, or, or a successful athlete, I'm a fan too. I'm a fan of plenty of athletes. And and one time, I'm not going to mention names, but I, I met one of my heroes and he could care less who I was, not who I was, but this because I wasn't Tony there, I was just a fan. That, to me, he lost a fan. So I'm so paranoid about that that I give everybody the attention that I can. And I think because, you know, you need to understand that we only exist because of them. Because if people didn't watch triathlon or you or me, we wouldn't be here talking about anything. If they don't watch the show, somebody's going to kill it, right? The podcast. So sometimes that person only have that chance at that moment. It will be five seconds to meet you because they might never going to get a chance again. And I try to to put myself in their position. So to answer your question, I guess I just feel like I'm, I'm a normal guy. I mean, you see, I mean, a lot of my fans says, oh man, your nose is really big. Like they have that approach that can make a criticism about me and they know I'm not gonna go, what are you talking about? I, I laugh, I said, yeah, I guess my nose is big because it is. But so I guess it's just, I'm, I'm a normal guy. I, I think, I, I, I don't know.
1: Um, so I wanna read something that you said in the previous interview. If I don't wake up with a goal, I feel like I'm not alive. Approaching the later stage in your career, here a couple of years ago, you said to me, hey, I'm going to pretty much end it in a couple of years here, maybe one or two. And now we're talking a couple more years. Uh, it's getting track.
2: old, Eric. I've been telling you this for four years.
1: I know. It's going on. But I love it. I love it. I want to see you race until you're 60 or 80, like Tom Brady. It's
2: not happening. It's not okay. Happening. I want to do I want to do Kona in a proper way, so I'm going to have to... My racing career is hurting my triathlon career. You know that.
1: Talk about your affinity for the bike, the aerodynamics. How did you get into cycling? And uh, why do you think it's uh, clicked so well for you? So
2: the whole thing about cycling had begun because I was terrible at running. So I had to find something that I enjoyed to keep myself fit. So running was something that I would do three days and I would have to take 10 days off because of my shin splints, and it would hurt me, so I start to create this passion about the bike, which it makes a lot of sense if you think about it, that has a lot to do with speed, aerodynamic, carbon fiber, technology, power, everything that I have, in a race car, so that's how it became a passion of mine, and then... I've never actually done a triathlon in my life. When, you know, and once my coach said, "Oh, we already bike, run, and swim. Why don't you go do it?" And smartly, I uh, my first triathlon in my life, I signed up to do a 70.3 just because I thought this is what people do. Was that Clearwater? Uh, OceanSide. Oh yeah. Regretted every minute, but of my first one. But so the passion of the bike became because of all the similarities. Off Off the race car, and then that became something that you know years later it it is uh one of my strongest of the three uh like I said, not plugging Hoka but it's true i mean uh, i I improved my run a lot because that's what you have to do in triathlon if you, don't, if you don't run, you're not going anywhere it doesn't matter how strong you are on the bike so but yeah that's the passion of the bike was because of the race car
0: you know driving a race car isn't. Just about you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have the mechanics, the track needs to be perfect, the weather needs to be in your favor, you have the pit crew. So there's this whole production that I am assuming needs to be in your favor on the day. Outside of just having kind of like the mechanical luck on the bike in a triathlon, does triathlon seem simpler to you than driving?
2: Yes, because. Actually, it's a very easy answer. Triathlon, you have nobody to blame but yourself. If you don't do well, it's on you. You just said it. In racing, I can say, well, the weather didn't help. The car didn't help. The team didn't help. The engine didn't help. You know, it's you can make so many excuses, you know, and triathlon, you can't. It's on you. You didn't do it well you didn't have a good day. Okay. You're entitled of it, but, or you didn't prepare whatever that is, but
0: yeah. And are there any other endurance events that you'd like to do outside of triathlon or is Kona, are you really just all in on Kona?
2: No, I did Kona in 2011. Uh, I would love to do the race across America one day. I would love to do that. Get a team and just get in a motorhome and just go for days Hating life but loving life at the same time. That is something that I will do. Obviously, I need time. Um,
1: I think you got two two uh, teammates right here and Chelsea. My goodness, the way she runs it, oh lord, we're gonna win, we're gonna win. Are you are
2: you in? No, are let's you guys do it. it.
0: I'm in. I'm in. I a couple of years before we do that project, but I'm me, in.
2: Me too. Let's plan now let's for a couple of years and we'll okay. get it, we'll get it done.
1: Team time okay, to fly. We'll do it. Nice. So let's stay on Kona. Uh, you know, you did it in 2011, and uh, that was uh, you know good day. I saw you out there. But uh, talk about uh, 2021. I mean, Eric, it's so first time,
2: right? You have no obligations. I I went there and I said, you know what?
1: I'm not worried about my
2: time, which I wasn't at all. I'm gonna enjoy the race. I on the swim, I, I was looking. I mean, how beautiful it was down there. I started. I was terrified with so many swimmers to get kicked. So. I actually heard the start. I waited for everybody to go, and then I went, which was a mistake because I was bloody slow the entire race because I I lost the draft on the swim, which okay I'm not an awesome swimmer, but somebody will be in front of sure. me to give me reference. Then yeah. I lost the entire group on the bike, which okay draft is not allowed, but it's like you see people. I see no, I saw nobody. It was so late that when I turned around, so I was in a headwind going, but by the time I turned around, it was so late that the wind had actually turned around, so I had a headwind back. It was awful. Awful. I hate myself. So it's a lot of pressure now because this time I'm going for a better time. This time, I think, you know, the competitive side of me saying, no, you've got to go start with everybody else. And maybe you need to go all the way to the front, and then they're going to start passing you. But at least you go, you move, and you can't be a, you know worry about that. And then you can get a better position on the bike, and so on. So the goal is to go faster. Although it's not very difficult to be the quicker than a 12:40 that I did nowadays with my preparation. So I'm not. Guys, don't don't get your hopes up that it, the goal is really the, the bar set
1: really low, unless I. I bonk we both did 1240s in Kona you in 2011 12, look, me in '02. 2 so I think see, maybe next year we got to both race a Kona again How about that
2: I I agree let's do it I, I you know the most depressing part of uh, my Kona experience was the banquet the next day I sat there watching uh, all the age groupers and getting their you know their awards and sitting me and my wife and and we looked uh, age group from 70 to 75, I would have finished fifth with my time. So I told Lauren, I said, if I keep doing the same time until I 75, I'll finish in the top five.
0: Mm, business. We got hope. Going home with some hardware. <laughs> I love it. Tony, we have got a little quick fire round okay. here. I love to it. To close out the interview. Eric, let's, let's lead that one off.
1: All righty. Tony, what is your favorite mantra or saying? Never give up.
0: Your favorite journey?
1: Life. Life is a journey for me. Your favorite sound? Of an engine. Oh, man. Awesome.
0: Tony, you get one style of hokas to wear for the rest of your life. What do you go with?
1: X all day long. Oh, yeah, me too. Nice. Vaccines are in place, COVID's down, it's gone away. What's the first thing you want to do when things get back to normal? A hug.
0: You know, Tony, we cannot finish a conversation with you without talking about pranks. (laughs) Okay. You are known as a pretty hardcore prankster with many elaborate pranks to your name. But on this occasion, we would like you to tell us about a prank that was done to you. By two of your colleagues, and I believe it was during a live ESPN interview.
2: It was. So I had bought during the month of May. uh, I didn't live here, so we used to commute from Miami to Indy. So I brought my bike because I train all the time. I had my brand new carbon fiber bike that I had bought at the time. Track didn't sponsor me, so I had paid like top dollar, like. Almost like 10 grand for the bike. Um, and we stay in motorhomes at the racetrack. And I was doing this live interview uh, for ESPN at six o'clock in the afternoon at the track. And I, I'm in front of the camera, so I'm facing you guys. And I can see in the back my two teammates, which I had pulled the biggest prank ever on them in the back, holding my bike like this. Hey, I'm like, Are these people stupid? Are they trying to make me laugh? Like, because that was another game. Like, when somebody was behind the camera, it, you tried to make, and I, no offense, but not trying to be cocky, but I don't laugh. You can do whatever you want. I won't laugh. I'm like, what are you doing? So they shook the bike three or four times. The other one puts a chainsaw out and says, and then I'm talking and answering questions. And they start actually sewing the bike in half. And they did it, and one held one side of it and the other one held the other side of it and I was like I was in disbelief uh I held up pretty good I I don't think anybody realized what happened I thought at the for one moment there was a fake bike or something they didn't didn't do it but they did
0: that as a as a fellow cyclist that gives me anxiety you know how we are about our bicycles and other people touching them
2: no I mean it's like uh, me with my helmets to my racing I don't like people trying it no but like my my, but but, but Chelsea, it was honestly, I rode the bike twice. <laughs> it was a brand new bike. I took it to Indies <laughs> the month of May.
0: That's heartbreaking. So they.
2: To be fair, they already had it in place. They had bought me. Obviously, it was just they had to buy the frame, all the company, sure. everything of the group. Did
0: you get them back is what I want to know. They bought,
2: they bought it back and then they actually wanted it. They, they kept the bike uh, and they have it. So they have one. One of each have the one side of it.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. And did you did you prank them back after that one?
2: No, that was uh that was that the was... end of it. We said okay, we reached a limit. I did something to to you okay. guys. And so real quick before we hang up, the, what I did to them was I hook up. I got a rental car. I actually told the rear wheels because I know mechanically the rear wheels towed it this way, so the car would drive sideways the entire time. <laughs> I actually. Uh, we, I rewired the horn wire to the brake pedal, so every time they hit the brake, I honked the horn, and then reroute the windshield wiper uh, water thing for the windshield wiper. Uh, rewired to inside the car and put it on top of the steering wheel
1: and made the windshield dirty, so every time they press it, it sprayed. So I deserved it. But oh don't mess with tony this has been great
0: oh that is amazing tony Canon, this has been such a pleasure thank you for joining us
1: i appreciate it thanks for the opportunity and uh, i'll
2: uh, hopefully hey our plan race across america in two years
0: you heard it here first folks
2: yep we're on. We're probably gonna need one more we're doing four right
1: it'll be easier. all right guys thank you wow that was unbelievable i've never heard some of those stories before and i've known them a while
0: gosh what a pleasure and a privilege to have tony k on the podcast he has such a zest for life and i loved hearing not only about his career as a race car driver and his success there but also his pursuit of triathlon and his you know real passionate approach to the sport.
1: Yeah, he loves the sport of triathlon for sure. And we hope to see him out there on the Kona Coast in 2021, that is for sure.
0: You know, I was so impressed with how he's actually managed to double down on his triathlon training during this COVID lockdown period. It's, you know, it's certainly been hard for all of us as athletes, but to see Tony kind of take his training to the next level during this period of time, was really inspiring for me to hear about and you know I think it's just such a testament to his passion and work ethic and I'm I'm excited to see him back on the Indy race course this next year but I'm even more excited, I think, to see him in Kona. That's going to be a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I cannot wait to see him in Kona. Uh, How can you not be a Tony fan? He is the most loved man in Indy with over 380 starts and just an unbelievable, great guy.
0: Up next on the pod, we have got Sarah Stan Crowley, accountant turned multiple times 70.3 and Ironman champion, Kona, podium finisher. We cannot wait to ask her all about what she's been up to this year and what she is looking forward to on the race course in the years to come. So stay tuned and look out for Sarah Crowley on the Chelsea and Eric Show, brought to you by Hoka Ona Ona and Ironman.